All right, young people, thank you for joining us for opening prayer and song. We'll see how this, uh, how we can get along with one wing this morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn over to the book of Jude. We are concluding our doctrinal study of the doctrine of man and sin, and uh, I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at a couple of contemporary issues in relation to man and sin. We looked at uh, this gender blender of our society uh, where there is a reversal of roles, a confusion about the differences between men and women, and even as that pertains to life and ministry in the local church. And not only in uh, the gender blender of our society, but also in this sexual revolt. Uh, these are two contemporary issues that manifest man's fallenness. And in the book of Jude, I would remind you, I direct your eyes to verse, uh, verse number 17. Remember how Jude said uh, that you are to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time, they're going to be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. They are going to, according to verse 19, be sensual persons. In our study of Second Peter, you might recollect as we looked at the, at the portrait of false teachers in Second Peter 2, that one of the things that marks a false teacher, a false system off, is sexual perversion, their own sexual lusts. And there's much parallel between Second Peter and Book of Jude, as Jude does the same thing as Peter in warning of apostasy of his time and our time. We need to be discerners in the local church. Because, go, skip back up to verse 4. Because, remember, Jude, Jude says, I wanted to write to you concerning our common salvation, but I found the need to earnestly contend for the faith. And in verse 4, he says that certain persons have crept in unnoticed. No holes barred. You know, people, people came into the flock just like Paul said to the Ephesian elders that they're going to come in false teachers, not sparing the flock. They're going to produce disciples after their own selves. So, there, so verse 4 says, men crept in who, who used to, be, they used to be marked out. And as the church loses its ability to discern truth from error, true teachers from false teachers, there, there is that need to teach God's people how to be discerners so that we can mark out as they have always been marked out. 
Verse 5, he said, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And he starts recollecting some Old Testament history. Egypt was a great account in which God redeemed His chosen ones from bondage and that redemption for His chosen one was also judgment against unbelievers. The Lord destroyed unbelievers. And poster child number one of, of God obliterating His enemies ought to be the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God marked out those with sensual lusts. He destroyed unbelievers. And from that moment in history when God stepped in raining fire and brimstone down upon unbelievers, from that point forward, you mentioned the names Sodom and Gomorrah. You think of one thing, the judgment of God on unbelievers. Sodom and Gomorrah had given themselves over to sexual immorality. They'd gone after strange flesh. And Sodom and Gomorrah became an example of those who are given over to their sensuality. So Genesis chapters 18 and 19, which recollect the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, are what we even see in New Testament epistles like Romans chapter 1 about those who are in the habit of constantly suppressing the truth of unrighteousness, truth in unrighteousness. They exchange the truth of God for what? A lie. Rather than divine revelation, God's inerrant word of His person and His plan, they prefer the lie. Christianity Today, uh, uh, this article's uh, 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 about a week dated. I was planning on uh, being with you in Sunday school last week, but the Lord had other plans through a migraine and vomiting and all kinds of other fun, exciting things on the Lord's Day last week. But I had printed off an article on uh, March 28th from Christianity Today because you know what's going on. You, you think that uh, Jude's Day... And Paul's day to the Romans, or Sodom and Gomorrah's day, was time of the past. This is, this is history that we are living in. That we, as believers in Jesus Christ, those that are driven by the authority of Scripture, need to develop discernment in our day because you, you look at current events like what World Vision did. Where World Vision... Uh, found out that uh, they made a wrong decision, where they reversed the decision to hire Christians in same-sex marriages. They did that just two days after announcing that they would hire Christians in same-sex marriages. That is just one example in, in our society of the suppression, where, where the suppression of the truth goes and how we need to think through 
biblically how to respond to people in light of divine revelation that teaches that we live in a post-fall world, post-Genesis 3 world, how do we engage our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ? We've already discussed Eve's pride and rejecting God's Word just like many do today. Many are being seduced in our day by other authorities than Scripture. Authorities like Oprah and Dr. Phil that can solve our problems better than the Bible can. Unfortunately, a deep study of the Word isn't what many are interested in. Actually, that's that's one of my biggest problems with, uh, with a lot of contemporary uh, women's ministries and conferences that present a superficial understanding of Scripture. We are to be engaged in knowing God through the study of His Word. That ought to be the burning desire of every woman and every man. So we, we began looking a couple weeks at the gender blender, and so second of all, we'll look at this... Uh, Sexual uh, revolt. Sexual promiscuity is rampant. And before you, you think that I'm just zeroing in on the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, of sodomy and homosexuality, notice that first bullet point. As we think through this sexual revolt, this suppression of God's truth, and God had abandoned themselves abandoning people to uh, their own sin. This is, this is promiscuity not just by the homosexual agenda that's being pushed upon us, but even by heterosexual sin. There is a rampant disregard for Hebrews 13, verse 4. Do you memorize that verse? A disdain for the value of heterosexual marriage where the writer of the book of Hebrews says emphatically by divine inspiration of the Spirit of God that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. That is what he says. Marriage is honorable among all, the bed undefiled, the marriage bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. There is a disdain, a devaluing on the biblical doctrine of sexuality and a marriage that honors God. This disdain by the unmarried, they want to redefine fiancé. We don't need a piece of paper. Have you thought through as Peter exhorts you for a hope, a reason for the hope that lies within in response to the unmarried that wants to redefine fiancé who doesn't think that they need this piece of paper, this biblical ceremony of worship in which a lifetime of committed fidelity before the Lord and witnesses. You know, there's a disdain by the married if I were to use the phrase, take my wife, please, does that, uh, anybody remember? That, that phrase, that one-liner was popularized by comedian uh, Henny Youngman. 
Take my wife, please. You know, it's, there's a disdain, no regard for, for leave and cleave as written in Genesis, the book of beginnings. You are to leave your parents and cleave to that mate for a lifetime of commitment. You know, there's, there's no regard for what God has joined together. Let not man separate. And then fifthly, an increasingly overt homosexual activity and agenda. So there's this blatant disregard for the authority of Scripture. As I'd said in regards to the last topic in uh, uh, men's and women's roles, uh, fallen man who is darkened in his understanding, according to Ephesians 4.18, man who is blinded and ensnared by the evil one is enslaved to his passions, Titus 3.3. He's a slave to his sin without the intervening grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinners do what sinners do. Therefore, fallen man devalues human sexuality, reducing it just to a biological function, satisfying a particular appetite. That's why, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians 6.13, Proverbs 30, verse, verse 20. Uh, when, when the Apostle Paul writes to the church at, at Corinth, he wants to draw out to the believers that what you do, it is not just a physical act. Everything we do is an act of spiritual service of worship to the Lord. So that if you... Unite yourself to a harlot. It's a spiritual act, he says. All we do has spiritual ramifications. All of it. And as we continue to think through this and and draw some points together, while no more deserving of guilt than any other sin... Homosexuality is a particular sexual revolt cited as epitomizing unregenerate and ungrateful man's rebellion from God. Notice Romans 1. Or how about in the law, in the Mosaic law, in Leviticus 18 and verse number 22... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22. You'll notice that uh, the, the entire chapter are, are laws that are giving on, on immoral relations. Everything that dishonors God. Every kind of sexuality that is not biblical. And he says in verse 22 of Leviticus 18, you you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is, what? It's an abomination. Notice chapter 20 and verse number 13. It's reiterated again. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman... 
Both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. It's abomination. Contrarywise, you know, God does step into the lives of His elect. He opens the mind that used to be hostile towards Him. He gives them a new heart. He grants them repentance and saving faith and makes a repentant sinner a totally forgiven, totally clean, totally new creation who passionately pursues godliness. Join me in uh, Titus 3 for just a moment. You know, in, in contrast to those who want to compromise, those who want to dumb down the absolutes of Scripture, in contrast to those that want to say, well, uh, it's, it's, it's genetic, it's really not their fault, or any other kind of excuse that wants to be made in, in In Titus 3, notice verse 3 through 7. And I'm I'm trying to put this in context in how we think about this sexual revolt so that you, you know the phrase, hate the sin, but what? Love the sinner? Knowing biblically how to think through this. Here's how to think through it. Think about yourself and your own conversion. Titus 3.3 For we also once were foolish ourselves. We, that means you, Tina, John, Mike, Chris, and all of us here, you were disobedient. I was deceived. Enslaved to various lusts, pleasures, We were spending our lives in in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done. It wasn't a matter of you cleaning up your act and becoming moral. Not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in, in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Flip back to the previous chapter. Let's work in reverse. Titus 2, verse 11 in continuing to think about the gloriousness of the gospel, it's not that we are the most enlightened and we arrived here by our own brawn and our own brains. We're told, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness. (laughs) By divine revelation, by the authority of Scripture, we were commanded to put off sin and put on righteousness to the glory of our great King. That is what motivates us. This instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, 
to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Beloved, understand that none of us, there are no exceptions, none of us know the full extent of the evil of which we were capable when we were without Christ. I want that to be in bold and underlined and underscored in your mind as we think about the sexual revolution of our society. Lest you be exalted in some kind of spiritual pride in thinking that, well, you'd never be guilty of like the, the sin of homosexuality or any of these other immoral acts. Understand that the only difference between any of us is that God stepped into our lives with saving faith. And to Him be all the praise and all the glory. But know this as well, that uh, persecution may be coming. We definitely know more tightness is already in the works with this sexual agenda even led by the... uh, homosexual agenda. The importance is this. All this is essential to understand the mind of those who might come and persecute us as believers in the legal and political world. Think about that. That as laws get stricter and the agenda gets more, uh, they, they, uh, they gets ratcheted up a notch, and they're after churches and after believers and after those that, that submit to the authority of Scripture. That God might graciously choose to grant salvation to the legal adversary of the church and change him into a believer needing shepherding care. You know, if, if, if we don't have a proper perspective of the, of the sexual revolt in our society, we're going to... Uh, even if it's not in something that we say, in our attitude, unknowingly offend those that need salvation. Think about some of the examples in Scripture of the persecutors of the church that were saved, gloriously saved to the glory of God, like Paul, or Sosthenes, Let me give you three key texts as we, as we think about how to engage our culture to uphold biblical fidelity, biblical authority. There, there are three key texts, though there, though there are more, I just want to uh, draw your attention to, to three of them. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Somebody want to read that for us? 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Knowing that that the persecutions that are experienced by brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe might be the persecutions that are ours in the near future. Knowing that things are buttoning up and getting harder to practice biblical ministry, this is the first word for you in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. John, read it for us.
Think about that. Paul writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy, who was prone towards timidity, towards fear. He said that's not the spirit that we've been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a spirit of fear. So the first word is no fear. Don't fear what's on the horizon in our society. It might go from bad to worse, but for the saint, for the victorious Christian, no fear. No fear. Underscore that in your mind. Second word, Proverbs 22 and verse 3. Somebody want to read that for us? Proverbs 22 and verse 3. All right, the prudent man sees evil. So, lest you go out on a limb and be disconnected, thinking, all right, God said don't fear, and you just go off merrily on your way, doesn't mean that there shouldn't be prudence in our lives. You go pick a fight, and there's probably going to be one to be had. Let's exercise prudence. Let's exercise wisdom. Let's exercise discernment. Just because we're not to fear the future, it doesn't mean that we as a church ministry have not done things to try to protect the local church ministry by doing background checks and youth ministry and, and trying to have certain statements in our, in our constitution and bylaws that protect us so that your pastors do not, are not forced into doing homosexual weddings and other sorts of things in this sexual revolution of our day and age. No fear. Prudence. Let me give you a third word. You're in Proverbs 22. Skip back one chapter. Proverbs 21, 1, which says what? Proverbs 21, 1. Okay. You got it? This is just one of the hundreds and hundreds of verses on God's sovereignty we could turn to. The third word is sovereignty. What is that great picture that, uh, that we're given there in this wisdom literature, uh, this maxim of life that we are to live under, that God is absolutely sovereign, God raises up kings, and what does He also do? He tears down kings. You know, insert the book of Daniel and some of the wisdom that Daniel would bring into our lives. The, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it with her so he wills. Not a matter of our, our voting and our strategizing and whatnot. God has the last word, not us. No fear, prudence, and God is absolutely sovereign. With those three words in our minds and in our hearts, let's, let's draw some biblical affirmations. Things that we as a biblical ministry would affirm. We would say, first of all, that marriage has no meaning, absolutely no meaning, other than as He has provided. 
You look at the book of beginnings. Here you've got the first man, Adam. God's verdict was that it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper. The old King James said, meet for him or comparable to him. I'll make a companion. And so out of his rib, God forms woman. So we've got companionship. We've got the whole leave and cleave principle. We've got oneness. They are to be united in one flesh for one life. So we'd say marriage has no... You, you try to throw the Bible out, you throw out the meaning. Marriage only has meaning as God defines marriage because He is the divine architect of marriage. Second affirmation we'd make is that marriages of believers are to illustrate loving relationship of Christ and His church. In the book of Ephesians, we're given some great doctrine about salvation. And if you were to try to categorize or outline the book of Ephesians, the first, as Paul often does in his, his epistles, he, he front-ends the first half of the book with this deep doctrine of salvation and unpacks in the second half of the book the practical application of it. And when you get to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he says that uh, to all believers that we are to practice mutual submission to one another. And from that, he launches into his teaching on marriage. And his point is not marriage. His point is Christ and His church. And as marriage illustrates Christ and His church. So that husbands are to be as Christ to His wife, and the wives are to render submission as the church renders submission to her Lord. And so marriages of believers ought to illustrate that loving relationship of Christ and His church. And as such an illustration, believers should choose only those who share their faith in a regenerate life. I gave you a reference, 2 Corinthians 6.14. You, know, you probably know that from memory. That uh, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if He is your all in all, if He is the passion of your life, you are not to pursue a marital relationship with an unbeliever who is not a child of God, but is a child of the devil, who is totally different from your ambition in life, which is to, make, to know Christ and to make Him known. So we would affirm that marriage is the joining of one man and one woman in a single exclusive union according to the book of Genesis. One man and one woman in a single exclusive union. That means everything else is out of bounds. Everything else is abomination. Everything else does not bring glory to our God. So to say that marriage is joining one man and one woman in a single exclusive union is to also affirm that cohabitation does not establish marriage. You know, so for the person that says, why do I need a piece of paper? 
Where would you turn? How about uh, John chapter 4? Woman at the well. You remember the account, don't you? Turn with me there. I, I love how clear and unambiguous Jesus makes this. Uh, this is one of those, you know, it's, it's not the, uh, the only point or even the main point of the passage, but it's one of the truths that we can glean from it on marriage. Because Jesus here defines what isn't marriage. Here you've got a Samaritan woman who comes to draw water at the well. He goes through that whole story about, uh, hey, woman, can I have a drink? And, uh, you know, uh, well, if you knew who was asking you to give me to drink, you'd ask of him for a drink and he'd give you living water. You remember that evangelistic story where Jesus is evangelizing this woman. Well, so she, she asks in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. I, I, want, I don't want to have to run for my water anymore. I want, it to, uh, I, I want this running water so it doesn't, it's not by the sweat of my brow that I have to get the water. He said, go call your husband and come here. Good strategy, Lord, uh, because he hit her right in the matter. She's saying, I want salvation. He's saying, you don't know what you want because here's the issue of sin in your life. You don't have a husband in the way that you think you've got a husband. Verse 17, here's her response. She said, I've got no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly spoken. I have no husband for you've had how many? Five of them. Count them. You've had five of them. And the one whom you are living with is not your husband. So just living together, or co- cohabitation does not make you married in God's eyes. So he says, you've spoken truly. Woman, you got this one right. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. How'd you know? So cohabitation does not establish marriage. We'd also affirm, as written in Scripture, God hates divorce. What God has joined, what God has put together, let not man separate. And though God hates divorce, we've also got to interpret Every verse of Scripture in the context of the other verses of Scripture that don't contradict them, there are remote exceptions for divorce that God has established. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, the exception clause for unrepentant sexual sin are grounds for divorce or desertion by an unbeliever, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Those are the only exclusion God inscripturates for a way out. That doesn't mean that that they are commanded, but that they are allowed. Furthermore, we would affirm that no intimate sexual activity is to be engaged except between a man and woman married to each other. And that takes us back to that verse in Hebrews, that the marriage bed is undefiled. It's honorable to God. 
Think about that, those of you who are married, that God is honored in your sexual relationship with your spouse. That is a holy activity that brings Him glory as you render due benevolence to that spouse. As we continue with biblical affirmations in formulating a response to our sexually polluted society that any form, sorry, there's a typo there, it's not and, but any form of sexual immorality, whether that form be adultery or fornication or homosexuality or bisexual conduct or bestiality or incest or pedophilia or pornography or attempt to change one's biological sex is sinful. It is offensive to God. It is an abomination. This is speaking in absolute terms. It is affirming the authority of what God's Word has to say about it. Jesus, in His renowned Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew 5, 8, he's, He said, Blessed, He pronounces blessing upon the, the head of the, the pure in heart. They will see God. Those that are pure from the inside out, those who have been made right with God. You, you look at... Uh, I've made reference to Romans 1. Let's, let's actually go there for just a moment. You know, when, when biblical authors give an argument for the, the biblical definition and biblical pursuit of marriage, and when they deny everything outside of that, they make their argument from creation, from the beginning, from Genesis. Whether it's Paul's argument to Timothy on why there are role distinctions between women, men and women, or whether it's his argument in Romans 1. Notice, notice how uh, he keeps referring to the natural use. Romans 1.26 for this reason, what, what reason? Uh, this, when people are constantly suppressing the, the truth of God, when they're exchanging the truth of God for a lie, when they're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator God, he says, for this reason, verse 26, God gave them over. God washed His hands of those, and He gives them over to their degraded passions. Women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Notice the progression of this exchange. When you, when you remove God's truth, everything's fair game. And there is no absolute. You try to define marriage without the Bible, you reach the wrong definition. You got what is unnatural. Verse 27, and in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Just as they didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over 
to their depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Not proper. Not natural. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know this, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You remember that list he gives of the unrighteous? In 1 Corinthians 6, when, when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody who has with their lips professed Jesus Christ as their Savior, and I know that they're engaged in some sort of sexual sin, oftentimes this is a passage I'll come to. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, God makes it clear and unambiguous that unrighteous people do not get to heaven. He says, don't be deceived. If, if your whole way of life is marked by fornication, idolatry, adultery, effeminate, homosexuality, thievery, covetousness, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, this is just to get started on his list of what characterizes the unredeemed. Notice verse 11, such were some of you. Lest you get exalted in your own opinion that you wouldn't commit these sins, you were capable of every one of these sins, and so was I. But God rescued us. And that is how we come to others with the gospel, that God will rescue you from your sin and yourself, your own plans for your life, your own lordship, if you will surrender to His lordship. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. You were given hope. You're in response to much of the uh, sins of our society. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4 for a moment. If I were to ask you a question, if you were to know clear and unambiguous what God's will was, would you do it? Because that's the mark of a believer. Okay, God, you say jump, I'll say how high. Because I'm going to turn you, turn you to a passage that clearly exposes what His will is. And that is our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians for, beginning in verse 1, to gain a context, finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you actually do walk, that you still excel still more. I love that verse. Paul's saying, you know, you're, you're seeking the Lord, you're, you're, you're walking with the Lord, keep doing it. Excel still more. Progress in your holiness. Verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. Can't get any clearer than that. Here's God's will for your life, your sanctification. That is, so he's going to go on to define what sanctification looks like in the life of a believer. And in this context, it's sexual purity. 
He says, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion. Don't go like the false teachers that are marked out by their sexual promiscuity in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who don't know God. Verse 6, that no man transgress, that you don't break God's law, and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before, and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You know, when, when somebody wants to live in ambiguity and in relevance and without absolutes, there's again one of those passages that we turn to, God rejects this sexual escapade of our society, this sexual revolt. He gives absolutes so that those who do transgress their, His law will know clearly that they're exchanging His truth for a lie and they're in need of salvation. Look at it as a gospel opportunity. Look at it as a gospel opportunity. And if you look at it through the lens of the gospel, such were some of you, 1 Corinthians 6, and Titus 3 that we'd already looked at, that every person must be afforded compassion, love, kindness, respect, and dignity. Again, uh, lest, lest you not have the context of that saying people use of hate the sin and love the sinner. So we come to our world that God has planted us by His sovereign grace and His providence around people who reject His truth. We are to be offering them hope, healing, and forgiveness in Christ and Christ alone. That God offers redemption and forgiveness to all who confess and forsake their sin, including sexual sin. Seeking His mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Because as Scripture attests to, His forgiveness is total. His forgiveness is complete. So the question is, do they hear His Word? Are they willing to believe? John 5, 24, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. That is what we offer to our world. Or in Paul's word to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, Verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Here's what He did. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. That is our testimony if you know Christ as your Savior. And that is what we take to the world. So we are to engage our culture with the gospel. We're not to engage it with social, social justice 
or improvement by external morals, we're talking about heart transplant, beloved. Because anyone who has received this forgiveness, who is in Christ, is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Old things, all things have become new. Would you pray with me? Father, as we contemplate your truth and its everyday application in our lives, would you give us a ready defense as we search the Scriptures? As we search it from cover to cover, as diligent students reading and studying from Genesis through to Revelation, on your view from marriage and biblical sexuality that brings you honor and glory, might we use this as another segue to the gospel to take and engage our culture where it's at in its debauchery and take them to the foot of the cross where they can find forgiveness and new life in Christ. Help us as we are in the world to be not of the world but to take our world to Christ so that they might go to the other world of eternity in your presence, not out of your presence. Aid us in this endeavor by your Holy Spirit. Conform us to your image. Give us this ready defense that we'd think clearly and biblically, that we'd live biblically before a watching world that we are ambassadors to. Make us diligent ambassadors for the sake of our great King, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen.